Um, so we've been on this journey. And we've been in the process of this, this traveling. As these two men have been traveling down the road to Emmaus and saying, what just happened? What is going on? Everything that we've known, everything that we've lived by, everything that we've trusted in our whole entire lives has kind of been shifted and changed. And another man comes alongside of them, and they don't know who it is, but it ends up being Jesus. And Jesus ends up having a conversation with them. And he goes, and he starts talking about the prophets. And he talks about Moses. And he goes all the way back to the beginning of history. And that's where we've been, as we've been talking about the ark a few weeks ago. And we were talking about the curtain as a separated. And this conversation about Jesus in the temple um, got me thinking, man, um, if I asked you to tell me a story about Jesus in the temple, what, uh, what one would come to mind? Um, we're going to sit in Exodus again today, and that's where we've kind of been looking at. Um, so if you want to turn your Bibles to Exodus um, chapter 25, and we'll kind of move forward from there. But this conversation about Jesus in the temple... Man, maybe if you, if you started to think about, man, when was Jesus in the temple? What's, what's Jesus' relationship to the temple? You think about Luke chapter 2. In the middle of the second chapter of Luke, um, we see a story of where Jesus was presented to the temple. Only eight years old, he went to the temple to be circumcised. He went before the priest to fulfill the requirements of the law. Because Jesus was a good, law-abiding citizen. Or, or maybe you'd move past there and you'd go um, a little bit further in the second chapter, right at the end of it, where... Mary and Joseph had traveled for Passover to Jerusalem. And through the hustle and the bustle of the crowd, the the multitudes of people, somewhere along the way, Jesus had slipped out of their sight. He let go of their hands, and he wandered off in a different direction. And they turn around in one moment and say, where is Jesus? And they look all around for him. Finally, they end up finding him in the temple. And what's Jesus doing in the temple? He's teaching. He's sitting down with a bunch of educated religious leaders who've been doing this forever, and this eight-year-old boy is telling them something about God. He's teaching them about his father. Or maybe the story that you really think of is the one that we use um, to justify our Christian anger. And you think about Jesus flipping over tables in the temple at the end of uh, Luke chapter 19, I believe it is. Jesus goes in the temple and he's, he's cleansing it because these people have turned the temple into something it wasn't intended to be. It was a marketplace for greed and for cheating and for getting ahead. And Jesus saw it and he didn't want to have anything to do with it. Maybe that's what you're thinking when you think of Jesus in the temple. But Jesus, as he's sitting there talking to these guys, says, man, the story of Jesus in the temple starts way before he was eight years old. It goes all the way back to Exodus. It goes all the way back to Moses. It goes all the way back to the beginning of the promise that God had made. See, Jesus had been the intended point all along. So we get this idea that as we read our Old Testament, we read the the first set of books in our Bible, that God had two plans in mind. On the one plan, he had this Old Testament model with the, the tablets and the Ten Commandments and the temple. That was plan one. And then we think, oh, that didn't work, so then came Jesus. That's not the case. Jesus was always the point. Jesus was always the intended goal that God was going after. There was no second plan, no alternative to the plan, no no last hope. Jesus was the original hope, 
the first hope, the only hope. So the last couple of weeks, we've been putting ourselves in the story. That's what we've been talking about as we've been coming through it. And, and maybe you're like me here as we were singing our songs. I, I tend to reflect, especially when we sing a song that has the word cross in it. I tend to look for the cross in the room and reflect on the cross. And I notice we can't see it today because we've been sitting in this moment of separation. Praise the Lord. That's not where we're at. That's that's just a symbol. We're not there. We're not separated. But I couldn't help but thinking, man, people live like that their whole lives. Thinking that that was the end of it. That that was the best it got. That there was no more to the story than the curtain. Jesus tells these guys, Cleopas and the other guy, man, there's more to this story. And so in Luke 24, as he's sitting there talking to them, he begins with Moses and all the prophets and he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning, concerning himself. Priests came into the temple daily. They had a routine. There was, there was a process to what they were doing. And every day, as we've talked about the last couple of weeks, they were faced with uh, reminders. They were faced with reminders of their separation from God. They were faced with reminders of the garden just from walking in the door because the cherubim were guarding the doors, right? Just like they guarded the Garden of Eden. And throughout the process, the rituals of the things they did as we move through, and we'll talk about each one of these here today, as they moved through and they did their daily rituals, these things had implications for their life, for their relationship with God. And come to find out, they have implications for who Jesus is. That he was who he said he was all along. In the temple, on a daily basis, coming before the Lord. But maybe they were thinking that was all that they had hope for. So if you're, you've got your Bible turned to Exodus chapter 25, um, I want to read a passage here. And, and we're sitting in these kind of Another disclaimer, these kind of heavy texts, and they talk a lot about the measurements and the stuff going on. And it, those are opportunities to tune out to the scripture. When we read those, those long-winded genealogies of this person begets this person, this person begets this person. Or we read about, it was this many cubits long by this many cubits wide, and this, this. those are moments to tune out. But those are moments that were recorded for a reason. There's something about those things. It's easy to tune them out, but if we pay attention and we focus a little bit on these, uh, maybe we'll see the reality of some of these things as they relate to the life of Jesus and to our lives today. So Exodus 25, um, verses 23 through 30, says this, Make a table of acacia wood, two cubits long, a cubit wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold and make gold molding around it. Also, make around it a rim of handbreadth wide, and put a gold molding on the rim. Make four gold rings for the table and fasten them to the four corners where the four legs are. The rings are to be close to the rim to hold the poles used in carrying the table. Make the poles of acacia wood. Overlay them with gold and carry the table with them. And make its plates and dishes of pure gold, as well as its pitchers and bowls for the pouring out of offerings. Get this. Put the bread 
up the presence on this table to be before me at all times. This is the table of the bread of presence. And on this table, Jesus says, set the bread of presence before me at all times. So daily, the priest would come in and they'd look at the table. The table was set. The table was wood overlaid in gold. Now their craftsmanship was a little bit higher end than ours. So, so give that, bear that in mind um, since our, our pole's kind of fallen off here. But you get the picture, right? Overlaid in gold. Crafty, sturdy, strong, overlaid in gold. And on this table was to be loaves of bread. Need my clicker, actually. To get a better picture of what that bread actually was, we actually have to go back to Leviticus. Leviticus 24, 8 through 9 says, This bread is to be set out before the Lord regularly, Sabbath after Sabbath, on behalf of the Israelites, as a lasting covenant. It belongs to Aaron and his sons, who are to eat it in the sanctuary area, because it is the most holy part of their perpetual share of the food offerings presented to the Lord. So in ancient culture, it wasn't uncommon for a temple of whatever deity to have food in it. Everybody did that. Because the thought and the process was, well, God's got to eat, so we better make sure we got some food for him. So it didn't matter if it was the Israelites or it was anybody else, all the other false religions. It was common to have food in the temple. But what was so uncommon about this was that the Israelites never thought that this food was intended for God. The bread of presence wasn't intended for God to consume and eat because he needed to sustain himself. No, it was actually for the sustainment of Aaron and his sons, the priests that would come in and do their, their daily rituals. But it did have more significance than that. See, the bread was supposed to be in two columns. Or, yeah, two columns, six on a row. And if you're doing your math, that's 12. And what the 12 signified was the 12 tribes of Israel. That's what God wanted in his presence every day. That's what God wanted before him every day. He wanted the people before him every day. It wasn't about food for consumption. It was about the people that needed to be set before him on a daily basis. Leviticus tells us that, that it wasn't for God to eat, but that it was actually for Aaron and his sons to eat. And the 12 tribes of Israel were symbolized in the bread. But even more than that, the bread symbolized God's faithfulness to the people. How he had sustained them throughout their journeys. Throughout their slavery in Egypt. And throughout their time in the desert when he actually literally sent bread from heaven to them. Manna. That bread symbolized that. This bread is the bread of life. The bread of sustainment. The bread that keeps you going. And, and I got to wonder, as Jesus is going through and he's talking to these guys and he's saying, you know about the bread of presence, right? And here's the table and, and he's going through, he's talking through all these steps and they say, yeah, 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 yeah. We get that. But what's that have to do with this Jesus guy? Like, okay, so that's the 12 tribes of Israel. But what's this have to do with Jesus? Jesus says, okay. Well, why don't we, why don't we continue talking about 
what else is in this holy place. Why don't we move beyond there? But the bread of presence reminded them daily of God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness to the Israelites and God's continued faithfulness to his people. Next, we come upon the lampstand. Exodus 25, 31 says this, Make a lampstand of pure gold. Hammer it out. Base and shaft. Its flower-like cups, buds, and blossoms shall be of one piece with it. Six branches are to extend from the sides of the lampstand. Three on one side, three on the other. Three cups, shaped like almond flowers, with buds and blossoms are to be on one branch. Three on the next branch. And the same for all six branches, extending from the lampstand. And on the lampstand there are to be four cups, shaped like almond flowers, with buds and blossoms. One bud shall be under the, fair, uh, under the first pair of branches, extending from the lampstand. A second bud under the second pair. And a third bud under the third pair, six branches in all. Verse 36, the buds and branches shall all be of one piece with the lampstand hammered out of pure gold. Then make it seven lamps and let them set up on it so that they light the space in front of it. Its wick trimmers and trays are to be for pure gold. A talent of pure gold is to be used for the lampstand and all the accessories. See what you make them according to the pattern shown on the mountain. Now here again, craftsmanship's not quite there. Buds and blossoms, flowers, all over it. And Jesus begins to say, there's buds and blossoms and flowers all over it. He's like, do you realize that this resembles? And they're like, yeah, yeah, it resembles a tree. We get it. Not, not that surprising. Like, we've seen this before. This isn't anything new. And Jesus says, hold up. This isn't just any tree. This isn't just like, you know, just, oh, fertility and life. And No, 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 no. This is a specific tree. This is a symbol of the tree of life. Goes all the way back to the garden again. Jesus says, this takes us all the way back. This takes us back to the very beginning. When God gave Adam and Eve a choice, you can have this, the knowledge of good and evil, or you can have the tree of life. And so every day, as the priests came into the temple, they went about their business, and they were reminded of the garden. And they were reminded of God's promise and provision of life every day. They set themselves before the Lord to be reminded of that. They're reminded of the garden and separation. As they walked in and they saw the curtain and they saw the lampstand illuminating the space before them, they were reminded of that separation. You couldn't even get in through the front door without being reminded of it. The cherubim guarding the entrance as they were on the curtains, having to come in from the east. Jesus says, this is where it kind of really gets deeper, though. Flip over to Exodus 27, so maybe a page or two over in your Bible. Jesus says, this is where it really gets interesting. So these lampstands, right? This lampstand had to burn fire, right? You need something to burn a fire. You need oil. It says, where does this oil come from? Exodus 27, uh, verse 20, through the end of the chapter there. 
It says, Command the Israelites to bring you clear oil of pressed olives for the light, so that the lamps may be kept burning. In the tent of meeting, outside the curtain that is in front of the testimony, Aaron and his sons are to keep the lamps burning before the Lord from evening till morning. This is to be a lasting ordinance among the Israelites for the generation to come. So not only was it one time a day, but twice a day, the priests were to come into the temple to set themselves before the Lord. The command was given that these burn each day. And they burn all night long. So you needed that oil to make sure that it continued to burn all night long until the morning. It was habitual for the priests. They were used to doing this. They came in all the time and did it. It wasn't anything new for them. That was part of the routine. But these lamps needed that oil to burn. And the directions were given for how that oil was to be harvested. What it was supposed to be harvested from. And this is, this is that point where I'm talking about where these details and stuff are just kind of like, okay, what is, who cares? Like, what does that have to do with anything? But Jesus is getting to a point here. He's coming to a place where he's saying, this is why this matters. Because this oil had to be pressed and cultivated at just the right time. The, the branches that it was pulled from and pressed out of had to be just on the verge of ripening. If they were too ripe, they were no good. They had to be just the right time. And the way that they were milled, the way that they were pressed, was the firmest kind of press there was to get the most oil out of it, to get the most use out of these, these oil, uh, this oil. And so... Here again, we come to a moment where we say, okay, uh, Jesus, uh, we've been walking here, and, and we told you that this guy named Jesus, they don't know this is Jesus now, but we told you that this guy named Jesus um, was a prophet, he died on the cross, um, and we're trying to figure out what to do now, and all you've told us is about everything we know already. What, what, what are you trying to make out of this? And so Jesus says, okay, let's, let's continue on. Let's talk about the next thing in there. The altar of incense. And you can flip to Exodus chapter 30 here. Exodus chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. Here again, make an altar of acacia wood for burning incense. It is to be square, a cubit long, and a cubit wide, two cubits high. Its horn of one piece with it, overlay the top and all the sides with horn with pure gold. And make a gold molding around it. Make two gold rings for the altar below the molding, two on opposite sides to hold the poles used to carry it. Make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Put the altar in front of the curtain that is before the Ark of the Testimony, before the atonement cover that is over the testimony, where I will meet with you. Verse 7, Aaron must burn fragrant incense on the altar every morning when he, lends, when he tends to the lamps. He must burn incense again when he lights the lamps at twilight. So incense will burn regularly before the Lord for the generations to come. Do not offer on this altar any other incense or any burnt offering or grain offering, and do not pour a drink offering on it. Once a year, Aaron shall make an atonement on its horns. This annual atonement must be made with the blood of the atoning sin offering for the generations to come. It is most holy to the Lord. We're starting to see kind of a, a trend here. Made of wood, covered in gold. 
made of wood, covered in gold. There was no holes on this incense table, no place to remove ashes from something that burned. It was kind of, as you see it here, flat top. There's nowhere to, to clean it, to cleanse it. So likely they used something like this, a, a, called a censer. And maybe if you've come from a liturgical background, you might have seen uh, maybe a priest or something use something like this to burn incense. Little ball-shaped kind of cup thing. And you put the stuff in there, and they swing it around, and the smells fill the room. They'll walk up and down the aisles. This was probably something like what they used for the temple here. And the idea was that every morning... And every night, as the priests came in to do their rituals, this was something that was part of that. They had to burn the incense on there. Now, now it's probably not much of a surprise, but there were specifications given for what that incense was supposed to be, too. So it says here in, that, in this passage we just read in Exodus 30, don't make any burnt offerings, uh, don't do any drink offerings, uh, there's specific stuff I want you to do on this table. I don't want you to, to mix it up with other tables. Because there's another table that we'll get to in a later week that talks about some more of those offerings. But this table was specifically for this. And it signified that although we cannot see God's presence because of the curtain, we most, must be focused on moving in that direction. It was as close to the curtain as you could get. As close as you could possibly get. And half a pound of incense was to be burnt every day and every evening. And it would do a couple things. It would take away the smell of, of burnt flesh from the burnt offering table that happened outside. Because um, that would smell pretty rotten. It was also supposed to fill the room with sweet aroma. A sweet fragrance. Something that was pleasing. Something that like when you walk into a home and somebody just febreze the house up for you. It's kind of like, oh, that's nice. I appreciate that. Or when you walk into a, a middle school boy's locker room and you smell that sweet aroma, a whole different ball game. The temple wasn't supposed to smell like that. It was supposed to be sweet smell. And not only did it signify that sweet aroma, but it signified the pleasure that we're supposed to have as followers in following after our Lord. That sweet aroma, that, that wonderful fragrance, that pleasantness was supposed to be something that we lived our lives for. A little bit further in Exodus 30, verse 34. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Take fragrant spices, gum resin, onicha, and galbanum. Maybe I said those right. And pure frankincense, all in equal amounts. And make a fragrant blend of incense. The work of a perfumer. It is to be salted and pure and sacred. Grind some of it into a powder and place it in front of the testimony in the tent of meeting, where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. Do not make any incense with this formula for yourselves. Consider it holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to enjoy its fragrance must be cut off from his people. Now, maybe you don't know, you probably heard uh, that one word in there, kind of familiar from the, the Christmas story, frankincense. Um, well, myrrh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, was a kind of gum resin, which as we look at the first verse there, then the Lord said to Moses, take fragrant spices, gum resin, maybe myrrh. 
and make this blend, this myrrh with the frankincense. Blend it together to make the incense. And this incense isn't for you to, to just, you know, dab a little bit on yourself before you got a nice date tonight. It's not for that. This is for the Lord. Not only is it for the Lord, but if you use it, you're cut off from the people. This is God's. Those three gifts that the kings brought to Jesus. And this is where Jesus starts to kind of hammer it in for these guys. Because maybe they don't know the story of when Jesus was born. Maybe they don't understand the nativity story the way that we do. This is where Jesus hammers in and he says, So, you've noticed some of the things about this temple, right? So we call this the tent of meeting. And all throughout these scriptures, God says, I will meet with them. And all throughout this room is gold. Is gold. Is gold. Frankincense and myrrh. Burning. Everything's overlaying with gold. I don't think I have to draw that connection for you. There's a reason that the kings brought the gifts that they brought to Jesus. From his very birth, whenever they got there in that, in that journey, however long it took them to get to Jesus, however old he was when they finally got there, from his very birth, God was establish, establishing Jesus as himself, as God. Because if Jesus was using this perfume, this fragrance, these, these scents and smells, and he wasn't God, he was to be cut off from the people. From the very beginning, God said, this is me. I am him and he is me. Since the garden, God's people have been separated from God's presence. All the way back to Genesis 2 and 3. God's people have been separated from God's presence because they needed to be separated. So that's, that's the first, first disclaimer here is that it was a punishment, but it's something that needed to happen. For our safety. Because impure things can't live in harmony with pure things. The purity will overpower it and destroy it. And that's why God had to send us out. And since the garden, people have been living separated from God. And reminded of it daily as the priests came into the temple. And they went about their business. As they entered from the east. And they passed the cherubim. And they come before the tent. Knowing that right behind this curtain, right on the other side, is God. But knowing that I can never connect with Him. I can never connect with it. No matter how much I do. No matter what kind of burnt offering I bring, or, or what kind of incense I burn, or, or if I touch the table or don't touch the table, or how well I light the lamps. I can't connect with God. Perhaps as Jesus was talking with these men, he was asking them, why have you lost heart in this man? You believed that he was a prophet. That was your own, your own words. You said he was a prophet of the Lord. And you believed that he was who he said he was. So now that he's dead, now that he's been crucified, 
why have you lost heart? Hasn't God said these things, that he'll meet with you? Hasn't God said these other things that we haven't even gotten into today, uh, the, the prophecies about um, the Messiah, how he was to be crucified? What that was supposed to look like? Jesus says, why have you lost heart in this? At his birth, Jesus was established as God. The gold and the frankincense and the myrrh. As the incense and the aroma would fill the space. Not only that, um, but Jesus, as the Messiah, was God's movement out from behind the curtain. So for all the times that the priests came in here and they went about their business and they did their daily stuff, they were faithful to what they knew. They never had that encounter that way. They never had that moment where God stepped out from behind the curtain and established himself coming to meet us in our place, in our mess, in our brokenness. That's the story of Jesus. And he says, remember this, too. So remember how the, the oil needed to be pressed for the lamps? Um, how the, 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 it just had to be just ripe enough. Not too ripe, not, not too little, just ripe enough. Well, let me tell you something. You know where Jesus was uh, before he was crucified? He spent some time in, in uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, if you don't know what Gethsemane means, it means olive press. Hmm. And in those moments, Jesus, a vibrant, young, 30-something-year-old man, strong, well-liked, ripe in his life, was pressed, pressed to the point that he sweat drops of blood, pressed for the purest, holiest oil to burn constantly, burn all day into the night, burn all night into the day. Perhaps Jesus was pointing some of these things out to these guys. Pointing some stuff out about the temple. They knew this stuff was in there. This was part of the culture. This was part of the daily routine. This was part of the, the habits that had been established. And these people were being faithful to those things. It wasn't that they shied away or that they, they wanted something different or they were being neglectful. But Jesus was saying there was more to the story from the very beginning than what we gave credit for. And this moment in the temple, in the holy place, in the tent of meeting, is where God, he makes the step forward. Sure, we come into it, and, and we do our business and our daily rituals, but God is the one who makes the step forward, out from behind the curtain that we could never have crossed by ourselves. And now there's more to this, that as we go through our series here, uh, we're going to unpack through this, this journey. But we know where the story goes if you're a follower and you're a believer in Jesus. You know where this ends up. Jesus crucified. 
And here in the story on the Emmaus Road, already resurrected. Already walking again, conquering death, conquering sin and evil. He was pressed. Drops of blood. So that it might burn continually. Daily routines helped the Israelites need no convincing that they needed a Savior. They knew they were separated. They knew they weren't connected to God the way they were supposed to be in the garden. But they didn't realize sometimes when Jesus had already stepped out from behind the curtain. They didn't realize sometimes that the game had changed. Has your routine made you your own savior? Because that's what happened a lot of times, is that they thought, as long as I keep up with the daily routine, as long as I continue to do these things, we're good. As long as every day I make sure I'm in there, and, and, and I, do the, the, I light the lamps in the morning, and I light the lamps at evening, and I burn my incense twice a day, as long as I'm doing this stuff, and as long as I bring my burnt offering to the priest so that they can, they can do their thing and do their thing, and, and we're good. We're good. But that wasn't enough of the story. God didn't want to be separated. And so through that process of the daily routine, kind of make yourself your own savior sometimes. Thinking as if there's not more to this. I don't need more than this. I told you at the, at the beginning, before I even started today, that as I was sitting here and as we were worshiping this morning, Jesus met with me. Now, I don't, I don't know every implication for what that means for my life, but he was speaking to me about some stuff. He was speaking to me about things in my own life and the way I need to move forward. God's in the business of meeting people where they're at. He doesn't sit behind a curtain. He comes out and meets because he knows we can't do it by ourselves. The Israelites' daily routine brought them face-to-face -face with the reality of their lives' decisions. They didn't need convincing that they needed a Savior or for someone to fix what had been broken. But in this culture of do-it-yourself, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, make every effort on your own. Man, sometimes we miss it when somebody else is standing there ready to bring us out of the water that we're drowning in. I don't want to miss that. That's just my confession to you. I don't want to miss that moment. When I'm flapping around, going about my daily routine, as well and good as it is, if I'm missing the implications for how that changes my life, I'm still going to drown. And that's why I said at the beginning, too, that like these, these words and these overlaid with gold and should it be this many cubits and this many cubits and yada, yada, yada. Like, it doesn't mean anything if it's not transforming our lives. If we're not making other decisions based on that. If we're not deciding that, yeah, Jesus came out. My life doesn't need to be like that anymore. My life can be different. My life can be transformed and renewed to a different state. So that's my question for you today. Where are you at? What's Jesus talking to you about? 
Those guys on the road to Emmaus, they weren't expecting the Messiah to come up and start talking to them. They were just talking about life, about stuff, about what happened. And Jesus encountered them in a way like he tends to do, softly, tenderly. He just comes down and has a seat right beside you. And he just talks about life. God has stepped out from behind the curtain. And he's continuing to move forward. He's continuing to move forward. Are you going to stand like this? Or are you going to stand like this? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and Moses and Aaron, who established yourself as Lord from the very beginning. God, you painted a picture of the way things were supposed to be, the way things you created things to be. And God, somewhere along the way, uh, we find ourselves messing up. We find ourselves getting a curtain drawn because we just can't live up to that expectation. But yet we see in the temple, thank you, Lord, that you sent your son to step out from behind the curtain to meet us where we're at in our daily habitual routines, the things of life that just go day to day and we don't even think anything about it. Jesus has stepped out into that. Thank you for what that means for our lives. No more do we have to just hope this is the best it can get, but we can continue to hope in the best that there ever will be, in the promise of the resurrection, the promise of restoration. Almighty God, we, we praise you and we thank you today. Be with us as we go from here. Continue to guide our steps. Watch us as we go. In Christ's holy name, amen. Amen. Will you please stand? May you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And will you please love your neighbor as yourself. Hey, you guys have a wonderful week. We love you. We really do love you. And we, we are so glad that you are a part of our lives and we're a part of you.